1 Corinthians 13, and a wonderful chapter here, familiar. Certainly, we're in this discussion where Paul is addressing the Corinthians in regard to spiritual gifts. He's been talking about the diversity in spiritual gifts, yet them being unified because it's the same spirit behind all of them, how all of us are a part of the body of Christ. Nobody can be removed from that. We are unified in him through the work of the Holy Spirit. And then really 13 is kind of sandwiched in between 1231, where again Paul says, but earnestly desired the best gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And then if you go just to chapter 14, verse 1, he says, so pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So we see here, again, this is still a part of his discussion to them regarding spiritual gifts. What Paul has said, though, is as we talk about spiritual gifts, there is a more excellent way. There is, if you will, a lane that these are supposed to run in that they need to be aware of. So before we jump into this chapter, I just want to uh, say a couple things that I think it's important for us to remember. First is, again, there is always still a context, and that is the context here. The Bible never just talks about love outside of some particular context. The most wonderful passages on love in the Bible still have a context. So Romans 8 talks about love in the middle of salvation given to believers. Galatians talks about love being the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh. 1 John talks about love as an evidence of our new birth and the reality of our salvation and what God has done in our lives. And in this chapter, it isn't just a chapter on love. It is a chapter on love in context of a church that has been using spiritual gifts in an unloving manner. So there is still a filter that we have to look through here, uh, and it's important for us to kind of recognize that as we look at it. The second thing I think is important is that we don't make Paul say something that he isn't saying. And unfortunately, I think a lot of good Bible teachers even accidentally do this. They read through this passage, and many of you are probably familiar where Somebody, somebody will say, particularly in verses 4 through 7, where love is kind of described in its character. They'll say, okay, put your name in there. Now put Jesus' name in there. And Jesus' name always sounds way better than our name in the list. And that is true. Jesus is the perfect picture of love all the time. God is love. But Paul didn't write this to tell us who Jesus was or that Jesus is perfect in all his ways. Paul wrote this to tell the Corinthians that they should be like this. That's why he wrote it, so that they could see what spiritual love is and so that they could have that displayed in their lives. So that is what he's saying here. So we can use Jesus certainly as a background, but sometimes this just becomes more about who Jesus is than the actual exhortation and instruction that it is, which is Paul telling the Corinthians, this love should be displayed in your lives. It's not just supposed to be displayed in Jesus. Jesus is supposed to be displayed in you. And it's important for us to recognize what he's saying here and who he's saying it to. And the third thing I think that's important just to say is, as we read through this, love, uh, your Bible might say charity. The word is agape. It's love. It's a particular type of love, but it's always a biblical love. And I'll just say, when we see love mentioned, I won't just take it for granted, it's mentioned in the context of the Bible. So the world, when it uses, particularly our culture, the word love, it uses it in a different way than the Bible does. And in the Bible, love is not just an emotion that's out of our control. Typically in our culture, when we talk about love, it's something that's, that really we kind of have no power over, right? You fall in love. You don't have control over that. You just fall into it. Or love at first sight. Or, you know, some waves or emotional, uh, you know, story of love is behind it. And it's this whole kind of 
uh, however you want to describe it, fire, feeling, emotion that really is kind of out, our, out of our control. And sometimes people even work to tell people to stir this thing up. You know, they hammer Christians over the head and then you feel like you're not spiritual if you don't have the right emotion. Like the guy on stage obviously is really emotional and I'm not that emotional, so I'm falling short here. That's not, that's not the biblical picture that we have of love. The biblical picture of love is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the biblical picture of love is not a fickle emotion. It includes the mind, which is truth. It means truth is involved in love, things that are real and things aren't. It involves the will, which involves the body and obedience. I choose to do something. It also involves the heart, which... It, which Include your emotions. So it's not only emotional. It is intellectual, physical, and emotional. Body, mind, soul, spirit, heart, the whole of you. And at various t- times and ways, some, some of those are going to be more in line than others. And because we're sinful, all of them aren't always in harmony. When we all get to heaven, this is going to be really great. It will all be in harmony. My body can do what my mind is telling it to do, right? My emotion is always what it's supposed to be. Right now, though, those things, they're not always in harmony. So there are times where we have to have various exhortations toward love in all its different phases. Love and truth. We speak the truth in love. Love in heart. In our emotion. But also love in our choices and in our wills. And it's because... That's the biblical type of love that God can command love. If it was only a feeling, he couldn't command it. And it's also the reason that God can hold us responsible for love. Because it's more than just a feeling. It's more than just a wave of emotion in the Bible. It's informed. It's obedience. That's why Jesus would say in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So as we look at love here, we have to remember it's the way the Bible talks about love, not the way the world pictures love. So it's all, it's all those things put together. And Paul has them looking through a different grid. This is the way you should be focusing as opposed to where they have been focusing. So, uh, by way of quick outline, this chapter, verses 1 through 3, I like one author broke it down like this. Verses 1 through 3 are the necessity of love. Verses 4 through 7 are the character of love. And verses 8 through 13 are the permanence of love. So let's read verse 1. Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, But have not love, it profits me nothing. So what Paul wants to do here is he brings all these outward religious acts. All of these things would be considered good. If you saw them outwardly, you would say this person is a loving person. But what he does is he shows all these outward acts can be motivated by something other than love. If you're just an outside observer watching somebody come up and kiss Jesus on the cheek, you might think it's loving. If you knew it was Judas, you'd realize it's not loving. The act can be a kind act, but what is behind it, what is birthing it, is what really shows it to be what it sincerely and truly is. And we can all live outwardly religious lifestyles that are not loving. The Pharisees were the ultimate proof of that. This was important for the Corinthians because this has basically been kind of Paul's sticking point with them through the letter. 
It was their own experience. He talked to them about their wisdom, and their wisdom led them to divisions, chapter 1 and 3. Their knowledge of freedom that they had led to sin against Christ and the destruction of brothers and sisters for whom Christ died in chapter 8. Their remembrance of Christ in communion was for the worst, led to indulgence and drunkenness and even judgment and death in the church, just in chapter 11. And now, Paul showing the exercise of their spiritual gifts, it wasn't edifying, ordered, or loving. So there was a lot of religious acts happening here that were not outwardly looking terrible. But what Paul is saying is, there's not love behind them. So he brings in these things. Verse 1 again, the gift of tongues, which was again overtly prominent in this church, and we'll get to that here in chapter 14. He explains it in its highest expression, right? The tongues of men and of angels, as far as it could go. You could think of the highest version of this gift. But he says, if you have that and you express that, but you don't do it in love, you're just like some noisy metal instrument. He goes to the next thing, knowledge and understanding and faith and prophecy. Notice the word all repeated there. The gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, have all knowledge, though I have all faith, the type of faith that can move mountains or do miraculous things. But if you don't have love, the highest expression of all these things, but you don't have love, he says, I'm nothing. He then moves to the next and gives kind of the picture of personal surrender and sacrifice. If I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and I give my body to be burned up to the, part, up to the point of martyrdom, he says, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Again, the highest expression of personal sacrifice. And the point here that Paul is making is simple. It's incisive. It's cutting. But it's clear. Our speech, our knowledge, our faith, our sacrifice, if they do not originate from and continue in the love of God, they're nothing. All of these religious acts are means to the end. The tongues, the spiritual gifts are the means. The end is love. The Holy Spirit is only giving them to add love. They are a way, a path, one way that we can love other people. The faith, the prophecy, the knowledge, whatever expression that love might take in its religious form, it's, it's a means to the end. And they have exalted the means over the end. And this is something particularly those of us who live in religious circles can do very easily. We can think, because I'm doing the right thing, and I'm not doing something overtly unloving, that I must be loving. But what Paul is saying is, no, you could do a bunch of religious stuff and not actually have it originating from love. You're not really doing it just to love God and to love others. That might not even be an active thought in your mind at all. You might just like the song. Or like the social setting. What, what is actually behind it becomes the key. Again, Paul would say, Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. He who loves another has fulfilled the law. All religious action, the end is love. That was the whole point of it all. God's type of love. Again, Jesus would say in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this we all know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That's the whole point. So how in the world could we do this? How could Jesus so freely command this? How can he hold us responsible for it? He says the greatest commandment is that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors ourselves. That means all the things you're juggling in life, if there's one ball you don't drop, don't drop that one. Drop every other ball first, but you hold on to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbors yourself. And what, 
like, how can this happen in our lives? And how I think the Bible just sometimes it seems like it just so freely throws this out like, hey, go do this. And I the reason I believe and I think it's the context here as well that God can say this and Christ can command this is because it's only made possible through the life of God in us. And that's exactly what the Bible assumes you have. It's like you guys think this expression of the Holy Spirit through tongues is what matters. No, the main thing is that love is the center of all this. And God gave you his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit sheds the love of God abroad in your heart. Paul assumes that this message is echoed in their heart already, as does the Bible when it speaks to us, as does Jesus when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Because he assumes that anyone who's really his child is going to care about his commandments because the Holy Spirit's in them. And that the love of God will already be working that in his heart or in her heart. And just what every Corinthian in that day had, the work of the Holy Spirit in them, every Christian in our day has. And love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is what he is trying to work out of my life and your life. So Paul warns them to see, look, you can have the highest expressions of religious actions, but if the motive, if the source, if the path is not love, then they're worth nothing. They're worth nothing. Now he's going to move into a further description of this love, of what it would look like. And certainly these things are in contrast to how the Corinthians had been acting among themselves. Divisions, choosing different leaders, uh, choosing different forms of philosophy and wisdom, not leaving food for their friends, getting drunk, right? All these things, not caring about their brother who's not as mature in them and stumbling them with their food. All these things that he's already addressed, he's going to lay out, again, a character here that will reorient them. So verse 4, he says, we'll read down and then we'll walk through it. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And certainly again, Jesus is the ultimate picture of all these things. He's the only one who 100% of the time clearly laid them out. And he is the one we go to. But the point is, he has given us his spirit. And this is what God is working in you and I through his Holy Spirit. The, the life of God will look like this in us. It will be manifested in our lives by the Spirit of Christ. So, First, he says in four again, love suffers long. That means love is patient and enduring. Love is not in a hurry or rushed. There's, you know there is actually no verse in the Bible that said, and then Jesus started freaking out because Peter took too long to put his shoes on. I like, there's a lot of times we lose our love because we're in a hurry, we're rushed, and you never see Jesus, he gets interrupted. We take this for granted. He gets interrupted all the time. And you never see him freaking out because of it. He realizes God the Father is directing his life. This, this is love that displays itself patiently and endurance. And certainly I think sometimes our minds can jump to like the craziest forms of these things. But there's a lot of just normal life practical forms. I mean, if you're a mom who has got a child to five years old, you've, you've displayed this for five years. Right? Like there, there is patience and kindness, a love that endures, a friendship that lasts years. This has to be a part of it. Otherwise, it wouldn't last that long. A fellowship that lasts years. This has to be a part of it. Otherwise, it wouldn't last that long. There's... There's a wonderful beauty to 
love's ability to hang, to be patient, to not be rushed, to move at the correct speed. Love suffers long. It endures. And it is kind. The idea there is that it is good-natured. It, it has the right attitude and manner to it. And I think sometimes, you know, we can, we can easily focus on other things. Even for me, it's helpful for me to have clear lines. You know, sometimes you don't get them, and that's okay, but having clear lines helps. And, uh, you know, being right about something does not mean you're being kind about it. So I have a big sister, and she had to tell me once, like, we're discussing a situation. Mike, like, you're right about this, but you're not very nice about it. This is a thing a big sister tells you. And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> right? It's easy, to, it's easy to realize, okay, I can get focused on something, and, and it could be a good thing, but what is the central thing? Is loving God and loving others what's getting across? And if it is true, then there will be kindness in it. It doesn't mean lines won't be drawn. Jesus was kind to Judas, but a line was still drawn. Jesus was kind, but he could still say to people, you're either for me or against me. There was, there was kindness even in correction or in rebuke. Actually, most of the time, it's somebody who actually loves us enough to say something that is being most loving to us. But the reality is, it's very easy for us to get focused on other things and realize that, or forget to realize that love is kind. The Bible tells us that Jesus went through the world doing good. We get one run through this life. And if we run through this life, and our track is just full of miserable interactions with people, that's a problem. We have not been loving. We should certainly leave kindness behind us. Think of those people who were able to be kind to Jesus Christ. Like Peter's family had him in their home, or Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Or what about the guy who lent Jesus his donkey so he could ride in on Palm Sunday? What about Simon the Cyrene who was chosen to carry that cross and then could later come to the realization of what he had been able to do for Jesus Christ? Or the man who runs up with some sour wine and puts it on a stick and a sponge and puts it to Jesus' lips so we can hear him say it is finished. But that little act of kindness matters for all eternity. Right? And Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. What, what is the, the nature of our life? The attitude of it. Love is kind. Love also, now we're going to see, he moves from some positive to some negatives. He's going to go through a lot of things that love is not. And the absence of various vices is due to the presence of love. So one thing he says is, love does not envy. There's not a jealous ill will in it or an ungodly type of rivalry. Certainly the opposite of envy would be a generous and content spirit. Love does not parade itself. The idea here, this is actually a really rare word in the Greek. It means to behave like a braggart or a windbag. This is a very public calling of attention to oneself. Uh, certainly there was uh, a lot of this in their day. Um, but uh, I think it's important if we're actively seeking to call attention to ourselves, we're not walking in love. And it was a lot of what was happening in this church, particularly with their spiritual gifts. Uh, and it's the opposite of the world. The whole point today is to become an influencer or to get your name out there or to have some following. But basic Bible teaching is it's not actually loving to parade yourself. 
to be actively seeking to call attention to yourself. There's only one person who deserves attention, and it's not me or you. It's God. He says, love is not puffed up. Love is not arrogant or conceited. Uh, This seems in a more maybe personal way where the parading itself is a little more public. Certainly there is that idea of social caste systems, racism, just Jew-Gentile, a thinking of oneself as better than others. Uh, And it and it can happen in small realms as well. You know, we compare ourselves amongst ourselves. Um, you know, in, in a general rule, not 100%, but in a general rule, you know, ladies are usually a little better at picking out the one thing that's wrong with them. Everything could be okay, but they're like, but my one ear is a little lower than my other ear. You probably noticed that. Or where dudes, it's like, it doesn't matter how much is messed up. They're like, well, at least I got big biceps, right? Like they could just pick the one thing and be conceited about it, even though they got nothing else going. So we all have our forms of this, uh, some a little more uh, outwardly focused, some a little more inwardly focused. Love, he says, does not behave rudely. Um, the idea is shamefully. It's the word he uses with a parent that thinks they're shamefully treating their single virgin and and not giving them to be married in the way that they should in chapter 7. And I think this is another one of those, you could say it relates directly to kindness, but it's one of those things that can be overlooked. Um, Like what if we just had our normal daily life taped? You know, there's that commercial where they because in the NFL, you could throw a red flag and you could watch a replay of something. So friends are talking. They're like, who left the back door open? No, you did. No, I didn't. Let's throw the red flag and watch the replay. You can replay it and like, yeah, you did. What if, what if our lives were recorded for a day? Or what if we just had to hear ourselves talking to other people for a day? What, what would we, or what if that got recorded and then had to be played here for a night? All right, it's somebody else's turn tonight. Here we go. Surprise, surprise. You never know. It's going to be a raffle. Right? We would, what we would kind of realize is, ugh, there are these shameful things that I allow because they're not really, don't seem really huge, but I basically allow them to become a part of my nature. And love does not behave that way. Uh, by way of application, I also think it's important. This is a serious way that sin ruins Christian homes because kids grow up seeing parents act in ways that are shameful at home that they don't in public. Or there's a very different type of general attitude. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, says this in his day. We hear a great deal about the rudeness of the rising generation. I am an oldster myself and might be expected to take the oldster side. But in fact, I have been far more impressed by the bad manners of parents to children than by those of children to parents. Who has not been the embarrassed guest at a family's meal where the father or mother treated their grown-up offspring with such an incivility which offered to any other young people would have simply terminated the acquaintance. Dogmatic assertions on matters which children understand and their elders don't. Ruthless interruptions. Flat contradictions. Ridicule of things that the young take seriously, sometimes of their religion. Insulting references to their friends. All provide an easy answer to the question, why are they always out? Why do they like every other house better than their home? Who does not prefer civility to barbarism? You see, it goes beyond just some of the big things to our nature. We can think of the prodigal son and that parable. And it's obvious that there's two types of sin in that parable. The prodigal son's sin are sins of actions. And those are very clear and obvious. But the elder son's sins are sins of attitude. He's miserable. 
angry, isolates himself, walks out and doesn't want to have anything to do with his brother or what his father's doing, complaining. And both of those are sins. And it's easier to look at the prodigal son and see his sin and point out his nature. But the elder son is shameful in his actions. He is not loving. Love does not behave itself rudely in any arena, shamefully. And on another side, it is not unashamed of the things that are right. Jonathan, actually, the Bible tells us, fell in love with David and knew that David was going to be anointed king. And even though he was the next one in line to be king, he helped David in his upbringing and in his moving forward, even to the point where his own dad was shaming him, saying, you're basically born of a harlot. You're not even my own son. Don't you know he's going to take your position? But Jonathan was not ashamed to love David. Jesus wasn't ashamed to sit at a table with sinners and tax collectors or to have the woman who was a famous sinner come and weep on his feet and wipe it with her hair. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of love. It doesn't behave itself shamefully. Now, the world might look at it that way, but not, not God, not in his eyes. Love, he says here, does not seek its own. It's just plain selfishness. It's probably all of our problem. It's not the path that Jesus walked. Jesus did say that if we were going to follow him, we would have to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow him. Not because he was trying to give us something hard to do, but because that is how he lived. And he said, if you're going to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. You can't follow God and fulfill yourself. You follow God and allow him to fill you. And he promises to do it, because he does say if you lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. But you can't do both. And we try very hard. And that selfishness always easily kind of comes in. Even in religious circles, we're always trying to work and manipulate and organize our life for the, the best thing for us. Even if it looks like a religious thing. And there's always that temptation to seek our own in any situation. Our own comfort, our own reputation, our own good day our own financial well-being. And you're like, what's the problem with all those things? Well, the problem is, if love's not central, they're worth nothing. And they're unloving. That's what the problem is. So, Paul would say to the Philippians, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, I just ask, who else are you looking out for? And would they even know that you're looking out for them? <laughs> it can happen in a lot of different ways. Again, we go to these big things. Think of laying down your life for somebody or something. But, you know, if you're a boss with employees, it's obvious if that boss is actually looking out for their employees or not. Are they thinking about the well-being of others or not? Are you a, co are you a worker? You got coworkers? Are you thinking about the well-beings of others or yourself? Or not. It's easy when we think about it, but it's also easy to just think about ourselves. And unfortunately, what happens is, again, God doesn't tell us these things just to convict us. He tells us these things because they're true, and he knows they're actually what's best for us. And that happiness isn't found in seeking for myself and trying to fulfill myself. The happiness is actually found in giving and serving and loving. And many of you know that and you've experienced it. And then the more self-focused you get, the more miserable you are. God tells us these things because they're true. And he knows it's what's best. And Paul knows that it's what this church needs to think of. 
He says, as well, love is not provoked. The idea is not easily angered. A short temper is a symptom of a sinful and unloving nature. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 say, So then, my brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Love is not provoked. You couldn't get Jesus to lose it. He was always under control. He was always under control. And it was because he was loving. Love, he says, thinks no evil. It doesn't, you could say, keep accounts of evil. The idea is those things go together. If you're keeping accounts of evil, when you hold evil things against somebody, they said this about me, or I know why they really did that or sent that text, right? What happens then is you begin to think evil against them. You suspiciously impute evil motives to them. People are always reading into what other people are doing. Or why they said what they said. Some of you are like, he taught this tonight because somebody told him I came here. You're imputing evil motives to me. This is just where we are tonight. That's, we have a tendency to think evil of people. And what Paul says is, love doesn't do that. It doesn't mean love is gullible. It doesn't mean love can't understand things that are true or just gets taken advantage of. That's not what Paul's saying. Philippians 1.9, Paul would pray this for the uh, Philippian church. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. You can realize a person has an issue. You can realize we got to do an intervention for this person because we love them. But still not think evil of them. And with discernment, try to do what's best for somebody. But we very easily begin to impute evil motives, hold accounts, think evil of people. Love does not do that. It's not going to insert evil where it's not already proven to be found. Verse 6, he goes on, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love will always rejoice in what is true, not in any perversion of truth, which is evil. There's a lot of different versions of this. John 3.21 tells us, He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Romans 1 tells us that there are those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 1 John 1.6 says that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So love, he says, rejoices in the truth. It can do and practice the truth. It does not suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Love embraces truth where it finds it. Love is not ashamed of the commandments of Jesus Christ because they're true. Love is not ashamed of heaven and hell because it's true. Love is not ashamed of what the Bible says about creation or the fall or the coming of Jesus Christ or what he says the end will be because it's true. It does not suppress that truth in unrighteousness. It practices the truth in the light. It doesn't have to be afraid doesn't have to be ashamed. It can be seen. He says, as he goes on in 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. All things here, again, repeated over and over, means always or in everything. And Paul wants to give us this full kind of picture. One author put it, love has tenacity. I like that. Love has a tenacity to it. It doesn't give up 
very easily. It bears all things. That word in the Greek there, bear, has the idea of a roof or a covering. It endures. It believes. It believes the best. It looks at a friend and believes they can still repent. It looks at a prodigal and believes God will still work. It looks at a marriage and believes God can redeem. It looks at somebody who's struggling and believes that God can give them the strength that they need. It looks at circumstances and believes, God, you're in this. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love, to sum it all up in the beginning of 8 there, he says, never fails. And fails has the idea of withering or fading. There's never a withering of love. It's not that flower that grows this beautiful, that puts off the wonderful fragrance that then begins to wither and die and lose its petals. Love not only continues, but is going to continue for eternity and will grow more and more. And as our minds and our bodies and our emotions progress in the knowledge and the grace of God for all eternity, love is going to grow. It's never going to fail. It's in fact never going to get weaker, shouldn't get weaker in our experience. For eternity, to even be worthwhile for eternity, it has to be set in an eternal love. Right? Otherwise, heaven would be hell. You start to think about eternity, you get scared. But what God has promised, Jeremiah 31.3, says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. God says, I'm going to love you for eternity. How do you know that? I'll prove it for eternity. And you're just going to keep learning that over and over and over again for eternity. And if that wasn't true, nobody would want to be in heaven anyway. Eternity set in an eternal love. Love isn't going to fail. God's not going to fail. Nothing can separate us from his love. All his promises are going to be true. Now, Paul brings in the contrast, verse 8. The second half, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Spiritual gifts, again, are now a way that the Holy Spirit sheds his love abroad in our hearts now but spiritual gifts as a particular means of love, Paul says, are going to have an end. This is his whole point. You guys are making a big deal over a matter that is temporary and smaller than what the real focus should be, which is the eternal love of God. You're taking one little aspect of it and blowing it out of proportion. Don't you understand that those prophecies and tongues and knowledge... They're going to fail. When he says knowledge is going to fail, it doesn't mean knowing things. He means the spiritual gift. The, the spiritual revelation or knowledge that the Holy Spirit gives in a unique way now to individual people. He's saying that's not going to be needed forever. And all of those things, they're going to fail, but love isn't. And he says when that which is perfect comes, that which is in part will be done away with. This is a temporary way we work this situation until we get to the final situation. This is the training wheels. We take these off. You're making a big deal. You got tricked out training wheels. Don't you understand? This is, this is just a temporary situation here. You guys are overinflating the value of training wheels. Like they're good, and they're good for a time, and they have their purpose, but they're not supposed to be forever. They're not the end goal. And what he's saying here is they need to realize that. Now, there's some debate around particularly that phrase, that which is perfect. Those, again, who are cessationists or believe that the gifts will cease, say that which is perfect means the Bible or the canon, the finished, written scripture. Uh, it's not good uh, biblical interpretation to say that. Even many cessationists say 
this, this passage can't actually be talking about that. First and foremost, the Corinthians and likely even Paul have no idea of a finished canon of Scripture. That's not even something in their heads. It's not anywhere in the context. It's not what Paul is talking about. It's nowhere referenced else in the Bible. Nowhere calls the Bible or the finished canon that which is perfect. So Paul is not referencing that here. And it, secondly, it doesn't even answer any of the questions as to if that even was what he was saying, how does it fit the context? Why does it get rid of some spiritual gifts? Why is the promise of the Holy Ghost limited? It, it doesn't answer anything in regards to that. So Paul isn't talking about the cessation of particular gifts here. What he's talking about is when God gets to his final angle, all these spiritual gifts aren't going to be needed. But that's at the end when everything is the way that God would have it to be, when he comes back and sets up his kingdom, and there's a new heavens and a new earth, then you're not going to need these things. So he expands on that, verse 11 and 12, and says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul says, Look, when they stepped into spirituality, they began to learn things. And just like when you're a kid, you live a kid's life. You understand things the way a kid understands things. But all of those things are fine, but they're temporary. It's, it's fine to be a child. And when you're a child, you should be a child. But there comes a place where that child matures and grows into a different state. And that is what the end goal actually is. We know when a child is not maturing the right way, physically or mentally, that there becomes an issue. There's a problem. We begin to see that lack of development. And what Paul is saying is, this, this is the same thing that they're doing. They're getting over-focused here. No, these things are great. The spiritual gifts that God has given, they are here for this day and age. They're supposed to be used for this day and age. They're proper here. But we should also understand it is temporary. This is a temporary thing. And then there is an eternal thing. And the eternal thing is the mature version. Now, he says not only that, he's going to add another illustration, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. They had different types of mirrors or glass. People aren't sure exactly what he's talking about, but either of them were not super clear. And what Paul says is our knowledge right now is like the experience between seeing, I'll say, a photograph and a person face-to-face. -face. Those are two very different experiences. You can, you can see a picture of a person dimly. It's a version of it. And you can see the real thing. And the real thing has much more to it than a version of it. And what Paul is saying here is, the life God has for us, the way we're loving and expressing that love to one another, we see that dimly now. We see a version of it. It's true, but it's still just a version. It's not the perfect version. We're coming to that. And lastly, he'll say, Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Finally, he's saying the way that later we're going to know things the knowledge we will have is going to be different than the knowledge we have now. Again, it's not that what we know about God is false. It's that it's limited. And our comprehension of it is limited. The disciples walked around with Jesus for three years and their knowledge was still limited. They looked at him face to face. He says, later I'm going to know as I am known. The idea being there is going to be not only comprehension but insight and both of those working together what i see i will understand not only do i understand it but i understand his connection to everything else you could say maybe adam had a little bit more of that than us because when he walked through the world he understood everything was connected to god and for his glory that was a part of his purposes the disciples walked around and followed jesus but jesus had insight and comprehension he knew what was happening they constantly didn't know what was happening he was talking about doctrine they're like we forgot bread you know they were they 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 were there they were looking at him but they were not they were hearing words but not tracking 
right? And that's, we, we get some of it and we don't get other parts. And he says, no, I'm going to know differently as I am known. You're, there's going to be a different type of life and understanding of who God is and our love for one another. So, sums it up in 13 saying, now abide faith, hope, and love these three, but the greatest of these is love. Here we see faith, hope, and love connected. They're connected numerous times in scriptures. Romans 5, 1 through 5, Colossians 1, 4 and 5, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, Paul will say, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we see these three put together in scriptures in a lot of different places. Um, some people are a little confused, like, whoa, why is Paul just throwing these other two in here now? He's been talking about love. Where do faith and hope come in? And what Paul is saying is simply that, look, you guys have been focused on a temporary part of the Christian life and therefore blowing it out of proportion and making mistakes with it. You're actually being unloving. There are essential and eternal things in the Christian life. Love is the greatest. There are a couple other too, faith and hope. And those three are going to abide. They're going to abide forever. Some, some guys get a little mixed up because in other, how faith and hope are spoken of in other places in the scripture, they think they also disappear. Paul is very clear here. He says, no, these three are going to abide. Even through eternity, faith is simply trust in the character of God. I am going to trust in the good character of God for all eternity. And I am going to hope in the good character of God for all eternity. Even though I can now see it with my eyes, I will still trust and hope in it. If God took any one of us and put you on the shore in the new heavens and new earth and said, go explore the world, nothing's going to eat you or kill you, go see what you can find. You know what you would feel? Faith and hope. And it would be pretty exciting. Right? That... These things, he says, these three are going to abide. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. And why? Uh, you know, there's a lot of guys who debate this on different ways. I, I think it's because, this is my guess, faith and hope will be changed. Where right now we, we have faith, but not without seeing. We will then see. Hope, again, we have hope, but without seeing. We will then have sight and experience. Those two will still remain, but they'll be altered somewhat. Love doesn't change. It just gets purified. It just gets better. It just gets bigger. It's still the central motive of the whole thing. It's still what God wants us to know. Henry Drummond uh, Minister, He wrote a great little thing called The Greatest Thing in the World on this chapter. If you want to find a little book and be encouraged. He said this, though. He said, there's a great deal in the world that is delightful and beautiful. And there's a great deal in it that is engrossing. But it will not last. All that is in the world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, are but for a little while. Love not the world, therefore. Nothing that it contains is worth the life and consecration of an immortal soul. The immortal soul must give itself to something that is immortal. And the only immortal things are these. Now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's what Paul wants these Corinthians to see. What is worth the consecration of your immortal soul? Just speaking in tongues? You guys don't understand. That's fading. Love, yes. Faith, yes. Hope, yes. But most directly, love. It's never going to fade. It's never going to change. It's always going to be the center of things. Words like this chapter, I think, are wonderful. but They can be easily worn for us. They can turn into an old coin that's been handled too often and become indistinct. Hard to really see the specifics. But the realities 
are so rich. They're never going to change. They're just going to become deeper. And there's still a bit of the eternal to help us on our way. God gives us faith, hope, and love. He says these things are going to abide if you're going to put your focus somewhere, if you're going to make your investment somewhere, if you want to be on the most excellent way. There's all these other avenues that we can have to love one another. We can give our possessions. We can speak in tongues. We can seek for knowledge and impart that. We can prophesy. We can even give our own lives. But if the basis of that is not love, what are we doing? So he's going to say, yeah, sure. Desire spiritual gifts, but pursue love. Make that your focus. This is what is lasting. D.A. Carson in his book, Showing the Spirit, would say, The greatest evidence that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the Spirit has been poured out upon us, that we are citizens of a kingdom not yet consummated, is Christian love. Again, that's what Jesus said. How are people going to tell that we're his disciples? By the love that we have for one another. Not by whether we're speaking in tongues or whether we're prophesying, but by the love that we have for one another. You see, one day soon, all the people who think the gifts are for today, the people who don't think the gifts are for today, the cessationists and the continuationists, everybody who's actually a child of God is going to be in heaven with God. We'll all be there together. And the exercise of the gifts are going to be over. But what is going to matter when we stand there together is, were we loving one another? Right? Like that part will be over. But then I'm going to be looking at the dude like, I'm sorry. If you were right and you were unloving, you're still going to be sorry. And if you were wrong and unloving, then you're doubly wrong, right? That's bad. We're just going to be apologizing to each other and I'm sorry. I mean, I was wrong and I was mean. Like that was really bad. But... But if I'm loving, <laughs> that's, that's the key. That's the key. We, we want to be as right as we can. That's important. Right? Some people are like, you don't care about that. No. But Paul's point here is, no, this is, this is the eternal thing we need to focus on. Paul would say this to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love one to another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. How do you think you're going to be blameless when you stand before God and all the saints? You know how Paul says if you abound in love one to another, then you'll be blameless in holiness before the Father when he shows up and everybody who's a part of the family. That's, that's the thing that needs to be focused on. And that's what God is trying to work in their hearts through his Holy Spirit. And that's what he's trying to work in our hearts today through his Holy Spirit. It's who he is. And if he shows you or works on your heart in any of those areas, you can say, like, Lord, that is not me. Yeah, he already knows that. That's why perfect love came down for all of us, died for us. That's why Jesus tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave because he knew we needed it. We didn't have it but he still gives freely. And he will give this work if we make it our pursuit, as we should. So, let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. I do pray that you would cause your love to increase and abound in all of our hearts toward one another and toward all men. Lord, we don't want to be ashamed of you and your words at your coming. We want our hearts to be unblameable in holiness before your Father, 
and you and all the saints. So, Lord, do your good work in us and command what you will. Tell us what you want, but give what you command in our lives. Shed your love abroad in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Let us love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength for all the days of our lives. Let us love those, Lord, that you choose to put around us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.